0: You could use more than less of the text, that's good because that will give you the impression you've done the reading. All right? Uh, questions about that? So, over the next few weeks, think about what you want to do, and then we will hammer it out during that week to be announced next month. All right? But you should be looking at a paper here. All right? And you have to think up your own question, which means that you are at liberty to talk or inquire with everybody you want. All right? So you go and be Socratic, make a pain in the ass of yourselves. Um, your question will be your question. You'll be the only person doing that. Since it's unique to you, um, there's no way to cheat on this. You can ask anybody what the solution to your question is, um, except me.
1: <laughs>
0: All right? Uh, that being said, today... We're gonna watch the medieval synthesis get pulled apart like a wishbone at Thanksgiving, right? And it breaks down. And the ba- I know I'm the bearer of bad news, but it's broken for good, right? uh, It's not that the spirit of medieval scholasticism is dead. The idea of making sense out of the world uh, remains perfectly legitimate. And uh, I might be tempted to say that philosophy is an attempt to call things by their right names.
1: Hmm.
0: And uh, the use of names becomes controversial. Uh, Plato is a great genius. I think he's the smartest creature, or the smartest member of our species, as far as I know. What's most remarkable about him is the depth and insight of his questions and also the fact that his answers are almost always wrong. But wrong in an instructive way. You know, this guy goes to the head of the cave, you give him a, an A for the quality of the questions he offers. Uh, and the quality of the answers, since I mean, given that they're almost always wrong, is actually very useful. It's very stimulating, very educative. You can learn all right. By watching really great thinkers make really great mistakes, that's the human condition. All right. Uh, the emergence of nominalism from Billy O um, was a retort to the great Dominican thinkers like. Aquinas and Albertus Magnus, a whole collection of of genuine stars, intellectual stars. Um, It also is worth looking at the history of it, um, as I will try and demonstrate to you by the end of the term. Um, History is a very handy discipline to know. It really is, because the world, like it or not, is a series of historical events. They are real. They are there. They're just a given. All right? And history can allow you to cut through a lot of the nonsense that emerges in, say, literary criticism, or for that matter, philosophy, or uh, other ways of thinking about the world. In other words, history is often something like a universal solvent. You pour it on a problem, and it dissolves not just the problem, but also the wrong answers that go with the problem. I'll try and show you that um, when I send you my essay on Measure for Measure, which is how we're finishing the term. All right. um, my best—I under- mean, It took me like 25 years to write that, that, that paper. I've been thinking about it a lot. But once I wrote that, I mean, I think this is dispositive. In other words, it just finishes it all. There's been a whole lot of controversy, almost all of which is illiterate, um, about this play. And yeah, I think that um, history, gives me a way of talking, not just about one possible perspective on the play. I think I'm talking about the facts of the play itself. All right. So I will try and justify history at the end of the term, showing you what you can do with it. That's why it's so important to me to combine history and philosophy and literature and psychology and ethics and religion and art. In other words, um, boundary disciplines were made up by accountants All right. so they could figure out how to pay people. Boundary disciplines are not intrinsic to any discipline. All right. Um, The only time the people defend boundary disciplines is when they're nervous and they're trying to maintain their uh, turf. Don't don't believe the hype. Yeah. As Plato said, philosophy is the study of the whole. That's right. That's actually. See, when Plato gets it right, he really does get it right. <laughs> and, a philo- and a young philosopher is someone who is by nature dialectical. Mm. Again, few people like Plato as much as I do, and few people give him as hard times. But that's a measure of respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Was that a of- No? No, no. Okay. Um, all right, so you read Meister Eckhart? Okay. I feel like I'm going to start uh, slipping away from the gravity of the earth. You're going to have to put ankle weights on me just to keep me here with you. (laughs) On the other hand, the least you kind of stuff is nominalism. All right. Which is, uh, how can I put this? It's a genuine logical achievement. The problem is, I don't think he's intending to, but he's like Nietzsche philosophizing with a hammer. All right? I mean, it's a powerful, destructive argument. It also paves the way for the emergence of modern natural science. All right? Um, yeah? I going to on that. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> All right. You can also look at the conflict between Eckhart and Aquinas as being the territorial infighting between two rival orders, the Franciscans, which is Billy-O, and Aquinas, the Dominicans. Dominicanus, the dogs of the Lord. Yeah. And uh, just when Aquinas gets it all together, Aquinas has a mystical experience and stops doing it. Look, I have things to do. I'm gonna get I'm gonna woo, with God. I really don't want to do any more logic chopping with you. God knows I've done enough and my blasted work still isn't complete. And get ready for this. It's not gonna get complete. <laughs> right. If I were to live a hundred lifetimes, I still couldn't complete this. It dawns on me that this just isn't possible. All right. Um, our attempt to create a cognitive image of God, right, is asymptotic. We never completely get there. This is not any defect in God. There are a whole bunch of things that you're not going that you know your understanding of will be asymptotic. But God is gonna, is in some ways the major figure. Yeah. Aquinas would be the first to say that you're absolutely right. That's, that's right. Oh, see, well, that's that's the great thing. I mean, Aquinas. Um, is often much sharper than his latter-day advocates. Right? Um, when Aquinas says, given what I've seen, all I've written is straw, my sense is that you credit the guy's understanding of his own work. Right? Uh, and it's not just straw, it's actually very important to understand. In other words, if you weren't at AMU, if you were Florida Gulf Coast, we would have a big chunk on Aquinas and a big chunk on the Bible here, because you can't do the West without it, but because I am so interested in pushing the envelope as to what we do in this class, I cover <coughs> those spaces, if you have already read Aquinas or encountered the Bible and I'm going to shove more books in there because that's <coughs> the way I am alright, no slack alright, go ahead tell us about the tragedy Oh,
2: nominal. <laughs> so, we're not only uh, probably read uh, William Offbock and found him talking about universals and learned what the heck he was talking about. So first, let's uh, define our terms and <laughs> define our terms and talk about what is a universal. Some of you may remember this exercise from ancient philosophy. Uh, remember when Dr. Seguro asked us to think of a horse. And when you think of a horse, an image comes into your mind. And it's probably a, a big horse, a strong horse. Does this horse have a particular color in your mind? Uh, for me, it's black. I think it's a black horse. is really cool. So the, an image comes to your mind when I say the word horse. And what's really important here is that that is not a universal. That's, what is, that's uh, an internal image. But an internal image is always of a particular thing. A universal is a quality or a set of qualities which is shared by every example of the thing universal means one in the many and only examples yes exactly every and only every and only so the image in your head of a horse that's not a universal now you might want to ask is there a universal of horses is there a universal of horses and frankly i don't know most of the time when we interact with the world, we're kind of, what I would say, we're lazy is too strong of a word. We have more important things to do. We don't have time to find the universal of everything that we encounter. So instead what we do for most of the time is we come up with an image that has general qualities that are generally applicable, and then things that, which generally fit into that idea, we just call it by that name. So things that look like a horse, I call a horse. Things that look like a chair, I call a chair. This is, in in a way, we're all closet nominalists. We all treat the world in a sort of nominalist way most of the time. This is the thing that Dr. Seguro has taught me, which has been very useful for me to realize, that most of the time we do act like nominalists. However, there's something else that goes on in our mind, and Ockham recognizes this as well. We also have universals in our mind. These aren't images, these are concepts. And let me give you some examples. The most obvious example, as Plato saw, is math. If you think of a triangle, you can have an image in your head of a triangle, but you are always able to tell whether or not something is a triangle, even if it has looked very little like the image of a triangle in your head. Because a triangle has a universal definition. It is always and only three lines connected at points. Uh, that's a bad definition, but just work with me for a minute because I'm a little slow in the morning. So you can always tell what a triangle is, regardless of its shape, regardless of whether or not it, it looks similar to the your internal image. So that, you can tell here that we have something beyond a mere image. We have a concept. We have a universal concept. Here are some other examples. You all know what murder is. You can tell... You, you, if you get to a situation which is fuzzy, you don't think, well, it's, we're, we're not going, it's, it may be hard to figure out whether a particular situation is murder, but you know that murder is always the deliberate killing of an innocent. So you just have to figure out, was there the deliberate killing of an innocent here? And then you know it's murder or not. Sometimes it gets gray and fuzzy because life is complicated, but nonetheless, you do have a very clear concept of what murder is. Here's another very important example for modern Catholics. You know what a human being is? It's harder to, A human being is harder to define. Aristotle thought that he had the definition when he said rational animal. I'm not sure if that's the definition. But whether even if you can't articulate what the definition is, you have an implicit concept of what a human being is, which is universal and which is to a large degree certain. And if it weren't, you wouldn't be able to tell that from conception until natural death, what you're dealing with is a human being. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. We have a concept of what a human being is. So here's the question, here's the, the big question, this is the question that has haunted philosophy since the time of Plato. Where do universals exist? Where do they come from? Nominalists say they only exist in the mind. Platonists say they exist primarily outside the mind as this kind of mystical, magical thing that floats around and which other things participate in? Yes, sir? What does it mean to say that universals exist outside the mind?
0: Um, if universals don't have a location, in other words, used outside?
2: That is an excellent how, how does something get outside something else without having a location? Right, so that's an excellent question and I'm just about to get to that. Good. Uh, first of all, I do have to say that I'm going to be using uh, language to some extent analogically. So when I see mean outside the mind, I mean that. I mean that it's uh, that it's not dependence on the mind. I'll put it that way. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a sec. So both Plato and nominalism have different ideas of where universals exist. I think they're both wrong. I'm going to defend a version of Aristotle's idea of how universalists exist, not because I think that Jesus was an Aristotelian, and not because I think that uh, the classics got it all right and we should all be uh, woolly mammoths in our philosophy, but I'm gonna defend this middle position, this sort of Goldilocks position, because I think both the extremes of Platonism and nominalism are incompatible with Christianity, and incompatible with reason. So here's Aristotle's medium solution. He says that universals exist in two places. They exist in things, and in the mind that abstracts them. Plato thought that uh, the, the universal of humanness doesn't really exist in me. I'm not really a human being. Instead, I participate in humanness, which is something outside of me that I interact with somehow. But as Aristotle and Plato himself pointed out, Plato, I love Plato, he pointed out the flaws in his own theory, in what I think is one of his most beautiful dialogues, the Parmenides, and the flaw that he noticed is that when I say, you know, you're a human being, I'm not referring to some third thing uh, related to you. There's, I'm not re- referring to some man in between you that's not you. I'm referring to you. you are a human being and I am a human being. So it can't be that there's some third thing that we're participating in, but it can't. So how, how does the universal exist, where is it? It's in you, you are a human being. And what I mean by that is that you have the structure in your existence, your, in your body in your, and in your soul that makes you a human being. I, when I say that you're a human being, I ignore all the particular features about you or about you. I ignore the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, uh, the shape of your face. I just don't pay attention to those things. I ignore them, and I look at what is the internal structure of you. I, I just, I ignore all the particulars until I get to the particular structure. Yes, sir? When you ask about the internal structure of you, you're talking about my skeleton. No, sir. So... I'm not just looking at you sitting there, I'm observing you over time and there are some things that remain constant in you even as you're moving and changing over time. And if I observe you for long enough, I can ignore all the things that change over time and focus on the things that don't change. When I get to the thing which doesn't change over time for uh, the entire course of your life, then I've found the universal that constitutes you, that makes you a human being, and the same with all of you. So this is the process of what Aristotle calls abstraction. When we see a person or in any given object, it comes into our mind as a total image, and as we pay attention to that image, the what he calls the active mind, which is this really the it's a, it's a fascinating concept that there's a power in our mind that. Mi- enables the world to be understood, this is the active intellect, it abstracts, it ignores particulars until it gets to the thing which remains the same over time. Now, most of the time, as Aristotle and Aquinas would be the first to admit, we don't get to the universal character of things. We just don't have time. It takes an enormous amount of effort to get down to the universal of any given thing. But with a few things, we have gotten down to the universal. And it's really important that we have, as I pointed out earlier, because otherwise, what's the, the the image of a fetus, of a human fetus, looks very similar to the image of a gorilla fetus. The image of an old man looks very different from the image of a young man, and even more different from a baby. So there's something, if we're just going to be nominalists, there's no set of properties that we can come up with, which enables, allows us to know that you can't kill a fetus, but you can kill a gorilla fetus, and you can't kill an old man, and you can't kill a young man, murder, I mean, but you can kill a, a, a gorilla and eat it if you're desperate. I don't know that it tastes very good, but it's not immoral. So there has to be some, Bitches, <sighs> I would get on my case if I said there has to be, I think there does have to be something outside the world, out, not dependent on my mind, something that I didn't create. There has to be something in you, in the things in my experience, which is in itself, which can be abstracted as a universal. Because if there's not, then the basis of our morality, of our mathematics, of our logic, there isn't one. And here's the problem, if there's no basis for our logic then the logical arguments that we give from nominalism fall apart, too. When William Ockham makes his argument for nominalism, he uses universals in every sentence. He's appealing to what he thinks are real qualities of the world, which he has somehow understood. And even even the very terms that he uses are universals. Here's what I mean. Uh, Could you do me a favor, Andrew, and just say the word red? Red. I'm going to say the word red, too. Now, clearly, those were two different words. You said red, and I said red, so they're separate. They're particulars. Mm -hmm. But we referred to the same thing. All of the names that we use have a universal character, in that they are one instance of a same thing across many times. Even if you and I have a slightly different concept of red, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: nonetheless, the word red has a universal quality which if it doesn't, then you and I are just completely talking past each other. There's no possibility of understanding if there aren't universals that are not dependent on the mind. So this is why I am a strong defender of the Aristotelian position. And So I I, I look at this and then I read William of Ockham's The Short Treatise that we read. Maybe he has better works out there than what we read. No, he's interminable. There is
0: no good choice. I've gone through much too much. I wanted to spare you. The experience of
2: okay. walking through the desert. I so okay. I, I I greatly appreciate it because when I read it, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to William Ockham. The uh, nominalism is a powerful idea, it's a powerful tool. It gave us modern natural science to a large extent. But the arguments that he gives, I mean, I'm, so I could I could stand up here and I could refute them point by point, but they're so sophistic and ridiculous, so full of sophistry. I don't even think it's worth it. I don't, there's no, a good Aristotelian, a good Thomas could refute it in his, sleep, in his sleep because he just completely misunderstands what any good Thomist or Aristotelian means when he's talking about universals. So why does he believe this? Why does he believe this kooky idea? First of all, he's trying to be commonsensical. I'll give him that. But I think there's a deeper reason why he believes this. And it goes back to, if you remember last class, uh, I forget the name of the thinker, but there was a thinker in Islam who came up with the idea of a Al- Al- uh, Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali had the idea that God is the direct cause of every effect. So when I pick up this water bottle, I don't pick up this water bottle. God moves the water bottle. It's just all God. God. Everything is God's power. And as Dr. Sigur pointed out, such an idea is incredibly destructive to culture. It destroys everything. Has certain consequences, though. First of all, not only is God the direct cause of every effect, but since God is all powerful and He does everything, nothing has an essence. Nothing has. There are no universals. We're g- at nominalism here, because if anything had a universal outside of God, then that would somehow be a limit on God's power. According to oh, oh, what's his name? Al Ghazali. According to Al Ghazali, any universals outside of even even there can't even be universals in God's mind because that would be a limit on his power. And our Bilio here likes Al-Ghazali. He reads him and he appropriates his occasionalism and the consequences of it, which are nominalism. So the the idea of nominalism is traceable back to this Islamic idea of occasionalism. And it's Because we don't get get occasionalism uh, pure and simple, we get nominalism, which is sort of mediated occasionalism. It doesn't destroy our culture as quickly as it destroyed Islamic culture. There's a bit of a lag time. In fact, it's 600 years later. And we're just now starting to see the cultural effects of occasionalism and nominalism destroying our culture. It's called relativism. It's called uh, pro-choice. What is a baby? Do you know what a baby is? I don't think you know what a baby is. I don't know what a baby is. How can you know what a baby is? How can you know that this is a human being that we can't kill? That's nominalism. We're saying that we don't know what a human life is. We don't know what a human being is. So these ideas have consequences. And the idea of nominalism, while it's a powerful tool, and in the hands of the Western tradition it's enabled us to create modern science, and I, we owe a great debt to it, I will acknowledge that. But it has cultural effects in that it breaks down morals, it breaks down logic, and it breaks down our ability to understand ourselves, which I think are indefensible. So wonderful. No, oh, that was admirable. Admirable. Um,
0: it's, nice it's nice to see undergraduates thinking things through. Um, and Billy O gives you plenty to think about, there's no doubt. Um, Whether he's connected to Al-Ghazali, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, There were people at the time of Plato who said stuff like, I have seen bread, but I have never seen the form of breadness, right? So this this is actually nothing new, and it's not, I mean, people rediscover it all the time, but uh, nominalism is the following proposition, or it involves the following idea, that Common nouns as opposed to proper nouns, proper nouns indicate one particular thing. What it means is that all common nouns like table and chair or human being all right, are all in fact collections of proper nouns. All right.
2: yeah. Out of curiosity, what collection of proper nouns is the word "all"? All. Oh, um,
0: what it refers to is. Well, actually, no. All is an adjective. So what it means is that uh, uh, without exception. It's it, in other words, it's not a thing. It's a quality.
1: All right? Yeah. What would just the basic? What would the
0: proper noun of like tables be? A table. That table. This table. Those are proper nouns referring to table. All right. Now what William of Ockham wants you to well now what Plato through Aquinas want you to believe is that there's something called tableness which exists independently of our mind and exists in some way that's not within space and time.
2: That's not actually what Aquinas believes. Okay. Uh, He's got the more moderate. uh, That's what Plato believes.
0: Yeah, right. Fair enough. Okay, so if you want to know what a table is, for Plato, you have to tell him what property every pl- every table has and only tables have. Good luck. All right, yeah.
2: And even Plato recognized the problem with that and later said that's that, right. Uh, there can there are only essences of immaterial things was his eventual idea.
0: Yeah, I think that actually that is defensible. In other words. Um, With regard to pure abstractions, like mathematical things, um, nominalism doesn't give you any advantage. They are uh, attributing universals to things like uh, squares, or the square root of 1, or or the the square root of 2, or a squared plus b squared equals c squared. All of those refer to essential things, to general abstractions. individual things, the things we refer to with common nouns, it's not clear that they have any corresponding abstraction. Um, Instead, what William of Ockham will say is that uh, a term like chair is in fact a kind of drawing of an imaginary circle to create a set of that chair and 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 and all the chairs in the world. All right. Now, what this means is that there are always going to be some uncertain border problems. All right? In other words, there are always going to be some gray areas. All right? You don't get absolute mathematical perfection out of nominalism because there's always a the question well, does that count as a, a chair or a crow or whatever it is you're defining. And what that means is that there are always going to be some uncertain cases when we're not quite sure whether something falls under a rubric or not. Uh, We actually find this in uh, cladistics in biology, those of you who know it. Uh, There are two tendencies, the splitters and the clumbers. They find bones and the paleontologists, which are the splitters say, ah, a little bit of difference here. This is a subspecies and this is a subspecies. So they tend to be moving the direction of nominalism. On the other hand, there are the clumbers and what they do is clump things around. That's a kind of dog. That's a primitive horse. All right? But what they're saying is that there's some general overarching term they use to refer to them. All right? um, arguments between splitters and clumpers never go anywhere. Because you can't tell a priori whether you should hack everything together under a universal, or whether you should be more accommodating to individual reality. Okay. So, nominalism is the belief that common nouns refer to sets of things rather than to some universal. And, if you stop and think about it, this is consistent with our ordinary experience. Now, let me bracket the set of abstractions because I think that Platonism and... Uh, the attribution of universals to that to that set of things that makes very good sense, but it's not clear to me that we have, or even that we need to have, uh, say, the essence of chair. Um, none of you, I mean, you native speakers of English, none of you is baffled by the term chair. If I were to tell you to stand up and then tell you to sit in different chairs. Um, None of you would wonder, well, what does he mean by that? You would actually instead just sit in different chairs. Which means you have no problem figuring out what a chair is. You know perfectly well what a chair is. Here's the rub. What is the essence of chairosity? Yeah? We don't know. Right. Um, how do we know it has
2: in order to explain that, we would have to get into a long metaphysical argument beginning with act and potency.
0: Okay. Um, metaphysical arguments. How many ways are there to possibly cut up the world of ideas?
2: I would argue there's only one that really works.
0: Okay. And what would you, what do you mean by really works?
2: That actually accounts for experience.
0: Okay. That would be fascinating. Um would be. Um, um, I've had some really weird experiences. I'm not sure they're going to We'll see. Yeah.
1: I just have a question. Yeah. Um. So in order to define something as a chair, would there have to be a basic essence that we
2: know that is chair to say this is a chair?
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's a bluff. Um, do you know what the essence of chair is, and could you tell me?
1: Something that is made with.
0: So, say a doll's house chair. Is that a chair? Barbie's supposed to sit on it. Yeah. Uh, What about... uh, I don't know.
2: Uh, Well, go ahead. The problem here on an Aristotelian view is that we're dealing with an artifact, something created by human beings, and we didn't sit down and say, we're going to create something with a particular essence. We just said we're going to come up with something practical and we're going to give it a practical name. So... Artifacts don't have uh, universal essences in the same way that the natural objects
0: do. Okay. Um, what's the other way of having universal essences?
2: The other way of having universal essences is in which you have a set of things, all of which have the exact same universal.
0: Okay. And how is that different from the earlier kind of?
2: With the shared maybe these two chairs have the same essence, quite mm-hmm. possibly, mm-hmm. uh, in that they were both made with the same intention and in the same way, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily share an essence with this chair. Instead, they just share a family resemblance, as Victor's saying. Okay,
0: I'm, I'm trying to get my mind around that. How, how do you know which are essentially connected and which are only connected verbally by family resemblance? Is there a test? It's a judgment
2: call. I, I, I could be wrong. but it it seems to me likely that these two share an essence because they were made with by the the same maker with the same intention uh, but that this chair and that chair uh, only share similar properties
1: okay we'll come back to this yeah could could the only thing you could say that there is an essence of is God because um, like in reading Eckhart um, a lot of times he refers to um, the essence of God in order to understand the essence of God, so would the only thing that you could—the essence—would be meaningful in the case of would be a creator.
0: I, I think God has an essence. That does, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, everybody who likes Plato does <laughs> right, think that. Um, I don't doubt that God has an essence, and I'm actually pretty good with things like the essence of geometrical things or numerical things, right? I mean, fourness makes sense to me. I can, I can figure out how to connect that to individual examples of four things all right? so i'm happy with god's essence and i'm happy with the essence of pure abstractions my question is does there exist an essence of ordinary everyday objects I'll get to you in a second now you asked me about chairs all right and you want to give a chair uh, a chair an essence First off, there was a time in your life before you took university courses and uh, you were a native speaker of English, which means that you were probably able to deploy the word chair effectively to say things like, the chair is black or the chair is over there. Okay. How did you manage to do that without having an essence? I mean, if you need one to recognize what a chair is, a chair to be meaningful, how'd you do all that stuff? I mean you made 10,000 sentences, all of which were comprehensible to other native speakers of English, and neither of you knows what the essence of a chair is. Well, then
2: I think, could you say that it, the essence doesn't depend on the person knowing it, it just exists? Okay.
0: If it doesn't mean, depend on the person knowing it, then what do we need it for?
2: That's
0: true. What did you say that
1: the essence of, like, four, of, mathematical thing should be. Oh, um,
0: it's defined defined in terms of other words. In other words, um, every mathematical object, which is an abstraction, is defined in terms of other abstractions. Let me give you an example. We have the idea of the number line, right? We start at zero and we quantify in two ways, positive numbers and negative numbers. You move either right or you move left. Um, so when I say something like two plus two equals four, I go to the positive two, and then since what I'm doing is addition, I move to the right two places, and I find that where I'm at, where I'm at, is four. So where's the essence in that? Um, you each mean? of those things is abstractly true. In other words. When I try to prove that, four, that two and two is four, I don't pull together, I mean, unless I'm talking to a really dense first grader, I don't bring together two fire trucks and two fire trucks and two, you know, toy dolls. Right. Um, well, I mean, I, I do, I do to, an in, to initially give them the idea, but then I take this stuff away and say, sweetheart, we did it with apples, we did it with oranges, we did it with bananas, we did it with fire trucks. Uh, now what I want to know is, If I just have two things that I didn't put together before, two chairs and two chairs, how many we got? And if they say four, then they understand what Uh, four is.
2: That's actually a very good example of what Aristotle means by abstraction. Mm -hmm. You look at something that's the same in multiple cases over a long period of time, Mm -hmm. and then you're able to abstract what the universal is that is a property of all of those cases. Okay. And what Aristotle wants to say is that, although it's very hard to do so, we're capable of doing this with more than just numbers. OK. that that's the interesting claim. Mm-hmm. Here,
0: um, Once we get past abstractions, I mean, pure mathematical objects, um, it's not clear to me that Aristotle's right. I mean, that's, that's actually what I would tend to, uh, what I think Wittgenstein would dispute. And I think he would be right there. But we'll bracket that. You don't have to believe what I believe. Here's the deal, though. What nominalism is doing is rejecting the whoo part of definition. Yeah. Just to be clear, yeah. the strong nominalist position also rejects the, the mathematical. That's interest. right. That's right. And of course, that's clear gibberish. Right. No doubt about that. Um, but the question is, all right, um, how is it that if I go to any first grade class and I ask the students, provided they're needed Speakers of English class, Um, what's a chair? And they say, that's obvious. It's that and that and that. I mean, um, it's stuff like that. This is like the things we're sitting on. They wouldn't find that problematic. Okay, well, how is it they succeed in using the word chair, the way we use the word chair, in the absence of any knowledge of essential chairness? In other words, they don't seem to need it. It doesn't seem to, to do anything. It seems like to me like the tail fins on those old Cadillacs. I mean, they're sort of cool looking, admittedly, but they're also um, an artifact from an earlier time, and they don't appear to serve any function. So when I go when I go to the to Detroit to redesign the Cadillacs, those things are doomed, All right? Okay, see so you. No, no first grader knows what a chair is, and yet every, every one of them, when they get told to sit in the chairs, they do. All right. So it seems then that it is possible for language to function just fine like it is without being pointed in the direction of these universals, which are a very dubious uh, ontological status. Let me give you an example. Um, do you believe that there's such a thing as the Atlantic Ocean? Good. That's admirable. I like that frown because what kind of stupid question is that? <laughs> okay. Exactly. What are its boundaries? And then after you tell me exactly what its boundaries are, then I want to find what the essence of Atlantic Ocean is. Yeah.
2: Again, we're dealing to some extent with an artifact. Okay. It's the, uh, uh, the yes, the, the Atlantic Ocean exists, <laughs> whether or not we call it the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. But the what the artifact is the map. Okay. A map is something that we create in order to parcel up the world uh, in order for our practical uses. Mm-hmm. We are worrying about essences and universals when we made the map, so it's very hard to define what the Atlantic Ocean is.
0: Okay, it is very hard to define what the Atlantic Ocean is. Actually, it's not. Um, when I go to the east coast of Florida, I go to the beach, and I said, well, that's the Atlantic Ocean. I don't have any problem defining it. I have a problem specifying what the essence of the Atlantic Ocean is because I don't think there is such a thing. I agree. I right. agree. So that's the difficulty. Now, notice that the English language is working just fine. No no resident of Florida has any problem pointing out the Atlantic Ocean.
2: This is the thing that they just say, Tommy, which is very important, that most of the time language is a practical tool. That's right. There are times, however, when we needed to do things that are not just practical tools, uh, and that comes up particularly in moral situations and in mathematical situations and logical situations, okay. and in those situations, uh, we need to do what a vision side would say, which is we've got to set limits. Okay. Uh, and I think that language is capable of doing that. It's very hard, but it's important to be able to do so in certain specific current circumstances. Okay, yeah, there I think I mean I have much to agree with there. Um, yeah? You,
1: you can't say what the essence of the Atlantic Ocean is, but like that little experiment we did with like, can you explain? even what the word means, like coffee, can you explain what it is? Sure, i you coffee not... right now, I don't have any problem but explaining But could you it. articulate that in It doesn't have an essence, it's just coffee. So that's what an essence right. would be, is that you couldn't
0: explain what it means in, in word form. Um, yeah, I can say it's the product of getting coffee beans, putting boiling water through the ground up beans, and then drinking the liquid that comes out, the liquid that comes out, that would be coffee.
1: Well, what was the argument that you couldn't it, it, like explain the, co- um, yeah. like the sm- um, I can't the describe smell. the smell
0: of coffee. Sim. There are powerful limits to language. Right? So what's That's actually something worth thinking about. right? Not everything we would like to be able to say are we able to say. Right? And so um, I don't know how to describe the smell of coffee. I don't know how to describe the taste of cinnamon. I don't know how to describe the sound of a clarinet. All right. Um, this, given the astonishing limitations on language, are you optimistic about your chances of linguistically formulating the essence of the good? Or for that matter, the essence of a chair, or the essence of the Atlantic Ocean? All right. My view is that, these, that the demand for essences is invented long after the demand for language and prior to that, language had been working tolerably well. Yeah.
2: It, the interesting thing is when it stopped working tolerably well, which is what happens when you get sophists. Okay, yeah, fair and, enough. And that's why some went around asking for essences. Okay, I mean, there, you're there, right. There were people who were uh, abusing the practicality of the polyvocality of language. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we need to say, okay, what are you talking about?
0: Okay, and he gets a good, I mean, a, a real head start with mathematical things. Right? I mean, we know they're on the upper part of the divide line. Those are good to go. All right. The question is um, what's the essence of things around us? All right. Let me give you an example of something that's not an artifact just to take a look. But what's a tree? Well, um, how do you learn the word tree when you're five years old? Here's how it happens an adult says, Sweetheart, that's a tree, and that's a tree, and that's a tree. That thing there, that's a tree, and that's a tree, and that's a tree. And assuming you have anything in the way of wit, when mom or dad asks you, sweetheart, what's that thing over there? And it's pointing at a tree, you say, tree. All right. But you don't need to know the essence of treeness to learn it. Also, you don't need the less the essence of trinus to know it. Alright? In other words, it could be that mom and dad haven't studied Platonism. Or philosophy, and say so they don't know what the essence of tree-ness is. It turns out not to make any difference. Well, if it doesn't make any difference, then your mom and your dad and you can all deploy the term "tree" to refer to a roughly, ident- a roughly similar bunch of things in the world. Um, what do we need ultimate spooky tree-ness for, yeah?
2: So Eric. Aquinas will say that no philosopher has ever come even to the essence of what a fly is. Yeah. uh, Just because it's so hard to extract an essence.
0: Uh, How does he know that's why?
2: His argument is that that is why the case is because he also has in his pocket very powerful arguments that in order for things to exist and in order for God to create them, God has to know what is the same and what is different in each individual.
0: That's fascinating. What happens when we plug that into Darwinian evolution and we get uh, Eohippus and Mesohippus and then modern horses?
2: So what we're dealing with there is our our attempts to categorize things over the course of history. Mm -hmm. If you take two horses, Mm -hmm. two modern horses, and put them together, Mm -hmm. in all probability they, two things that we call horses, in all probability they share an essence because they are children of uh, the same kind of species. I'm getting a little complicated. If you take any two given horses, it's likely that they share the same essence. If you take any two hippo horses mm-hmm. and put them together, it's likely that they share the same essence. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you take a hippo horse and the modern horse and put them together and ask if they share the same essence, I'm not sure. God knows I don't.
0: Okay. How do you know they have an essence?
2: Uh, again, I would have to get into metaphysics here.
0: Okay. That would take a long time. All right. Well, we, I mean, the big question, whatever it is you give us, is how do you know this mm-hmm. particular metaphysical construction is supposed to any other. So
2: hour. in the same way that we can abstract mathematical objects, mm-hmm. Aristotle wants to say that we can. there's something higher than mathematical abstraction, which is mm-hmm. metaphysical abstraction, mm-hmm. and that enables us to get us to get to the basic features of act and potency, mm-hmm. and these are, I, I'm, I'm just genuinely convinced that these are real features of the world as
0: real as one and two. Okay. That's an interesting argument. I mean, I, I don't have time to dilate on yeah, this I right uh, now, but I mean, it's a very interesting view. Um, consider the fact that it's, l- let's take something like uh, like the Atlantic Ocean. All right, um, There's only one of it. All right, so it's a proper noun. <coughs> All right. Um, how do I specify oceans in general? Do I just point to big bodies of water, or do they have some essence? And what would that essence be? I don't know. All right. Um, I doubt that there is a, uh, an essence of oceanity or oceanness or whatever. Um, it seems to me that... Um, the way we ordinarily use language, works reasonably well. In other words, did any of you have a problem in 12th grade making yourself understood using the English language? Probably not. How many of the people you talked to knew the essence of all the things you were talking about? Hell, you didn't know the essence of all the things you were talking about, much less the people you are talking to. And yet, language seems somehow to persevere and continue on, working reasonably well. It's a very practical tool. Yeah, so my question is this. If it's not broken, why fix
2: it? Only in the situations where it is broken.
0: Okay, yeah, right. And I can see that from mathematics. I can see how there has to be an essence of a triangle. It's a two-dimensional Euclidean form made up of three straight lines intersecting. I'm fine with that. Um, What's the essence? Now, when you said, what's the essence of a horse? What you're doing is freezing horses in time. But in fact, in the the world around us, no object is frozen in time. So my point is, between the emergence of Eohippus, dawn horse, and its transformation over millions of years, and many, many generations, to Mesohippus, and then that turns into modern horses, um, is there just one essence they're all participating in? Are there three essences? And whatever you're gonna tell me, whether it's one or three or 500,
2: how do you know? That's actually very well said. The idea of abstraction is to take things outside of time, uh, outside of the world of change. Mm -hmm. Uh, What Aristotle wants to say is that because there is both change and some real permanence in things, Mm -hmm. that at least for a, a given set of time, we can have genuine knowledge of things by considering them outside of time, and not just considering them inside of time. Okay, here's what... Um, and I, just to point out yeah. further, you, every time that you refer to Eohippus and the change of a modern horse, mm-hmm. you are stepping outside of time to consider this stretch of time.
0: No, what I'm doing is drawing a circle around a whole bunch of examples. during. Right, this but action. in
2: order to do that, you, you're not going back to the, the particular time of the Eohippus and the time of the modern horse, you're abstracting from time in order to Look at this change over time. Okay.
0: Um, it's perfectly possible. I mean, here's, here's the, where I depart from this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Greeks, like all the ancients, believed that you can really only know stuff that is. All right. It has to sit there, it has to be frozen someplace. Yeah. Now, the problem with that is that I believe, and I think there's pretty uh, convincing reasons to believe that it's possible to know things that undergo change. If it were not possible, modern natural science would not be possible. And yet we're surrounded by it. So my point is this. You can know things that are pure abstractions you and, and that you abstract outside of temporality, but you can also know things within temporality. Now my point is that what, it, what mesohippus is, that middle horse, the boundaries of that are arbitrary and fuzzy. Right? And each one of those mesohippi, I guess, um, is going to be slightly different from its parent, because that's that's how evolution is possible. So the question will be first, exactly, what is the essence of mesohippus, since it is constantly in flux? And if I want to push it back, I could push it all the way back to the first one-celled animal, Mm -hmm. and I could push it forward to us. Now the question is this. Um, Is there some essential way of partitioning this line of living things? And if so, how do you find this essence? Or um, is it nominalist, in the sense that you create rough-and-ready set theoretic things about uh, the one-celled origins and then the multicellular, I don't know, turning into uh, whatever it is they are. uh, mats of bacteria and stuff going all the way up so you could make this one universal thing, living stuff Okay, but then you'd have to find what the essence of life is, that would be tricky difficult. Right?
2: I'm happy to say I, I know that I don't know the answer to that just so long as I can defend our ability to know what a human being is I'm, I'm,
0: I can actually live with that um, the question will be then um, what is a human being? I think that Aristotle was partially right when he said that we're a rational animal. Although
2: you have to... Have you read the Bacchae? You, you have to... Yes. <coughs> uh, the, the thing is that what he meant by rational is very different than the modern term rational. Okay. Uh, what he meant is an animal capable of making abstractions.
0: Okay. Um, also capable of not making abstractions. Yes. So I, I,
2: I also think that uh, Swift <coughs> right, was pretty close to the truth when he said the potentially rational animal. Okay.
1: Um, what would, what is Occam's uh, belief in, like? What's his stance
0: at all this? Well, what Occam believes is this: that apart from these pure abstractions, ordinary things that make up the vast majority of your language don't have essences at all. Instead, what they have, what Wittgenstein will call, is family resemblances. Right? And what that means is that. We don't know what the essence of chairness is. I don't know what it is. Uh, Most seven-year-olds that understand English can use the word chair with perfect accuracy. There's not much to argue about. And yet none of them know what the essence of chairness is. So here's the question. Um, Occam is asking, why do we need these essences, these abstractions? Apparently, we don't, because language works just fine without them. And if you don't need them for something, well, then why are we spending our time constructing these things?
1: He said they have fam-
0: family... Uh- family resemblances, yeah. Um, this chair and that chair and that chair and that chair and that chair. All are things we would refer to as chair, which means they have a certain collection of similarities. In other words, this isn't a chair. Knowing the speaker would be tempted to say, hmm, you're drinking from a chair. Right? No one would use it that way.
1: So it's just like a primitive, like clumping.
0: Um, it well, it's clumping, but and, and it certainly is primitive in the sense that it's from the origin, right, right, from right. the origins. Right. But the fact that it's primitive doesn't mean that it isn't also sophisticated, right. because it prevents you from mystifying yourself, wondering what's the essence of dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, what makes something a dinosaur as opposed to being anything else?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My guess is that dinosaurs don't have essences either. C- could, could modern
1: science argue that, because I'm sure you would get this argument from like an atheist, that not, not even an atheist, mm-hmm. but that the DNA makeup would be like an essence because it's, it's something that's within all animals? Or... Okay,
0: yeah. Um, you might want to say that it's something uh, The DNA is... Uh, intrinsic to anything that's alive, but when they die, they still have DNA in them.
1: Okay, but how, care, but how would they get rid of the evidence? Wouldn't that art strengthen the argument? If they died, they still have DNA? Well,
0: um, if, you tra- if we're trying to define living things or animals, yeah. um, if they're dead, that would be an impediment. But it would still be an animal. would it? Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean the okay. same way a body's still a body if it's okay.
0: dead. Okay. Oh, right. well, we're good. We can have some some fun with this then. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of things. First off, I'm going to look at the animal. I'm going to, this is the corpse of our possum. It's mm-hmm. a dead possum. All right. I'm going to number all the atoms making it up. It's some finite number. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to put all of the odd-numbered atoms over here. And I'm going to put all the even numbered atoms over here. And then I'm going to fill in the ones that are lacking with other separate atoms. What do you mean the ones that are lacking? Well, here I only have the odd numbered atoms. But I'm going to need, in order to recreate the possum, I'm going to need the atoms that are missing. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do the same thing over here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where'd the essence of the possum go? Which one of them has it?
1: Well, I'm not saying a possum has the essence, I'm saying that the wouldn't the DNA and like the atoms
0: where, have the essence. Where did the DNA go? Here we have new DNA, at least in half for each of them. Yeah. Right. So which one of them has the essence?
1: Well, is that how it works that the atoms Well no, I'm trying
0: to what I'm what I'm asking is, um, why should we believe that the possum has an essence because it has DNA in it? I can split that. Yeah. Put half of them here, half of them there. Stick in other neutral material objects to make it alive again. Yeah, if you want. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's a science fiction hypothetical. You take it any way you Mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. My point is, um, if the original possum we had had an essence, when I split them in half, where does the essence go? Do both of them have half the essence? Does one? Do both of them have all the essence, or do neither of them have the essence?
1: Okay. can you say that both of them have the essence of that DNA that made them up? That was one at first. If like you split it up, the DNA is still over here and it's still over here. I don't think splitting up would really
0: do. Okay, so they both have the essence now.
1: So we doubled the amount of essence. No, that's not. That's not what you would be saying. You would okay. be, you'd be saying that the DNA is still is still there. If you split it up, that doesn't negate that it's like not there or it makes double the essence. It just the DNA would, if it was split up, the DNA would still be in the at. It would still be
0: existing. It would okay. still be a thing. If I took the DNA out of the possum entirely, um, would the possum still have its essence, or would the essence travel with the DNA? It, it would addictive? travel. It would be with the DNA. Okay. So, so DNA it, is. Is an essence. All right. Um, if I have a piece of DNA in a lab and I have it on a. On a jaw, viewer of an electron microscope, okay, is that DNA alive? Because it has the essence of living things or animality or whatever it is you're trying to attach to it?
1: I don't think it would have to be alive to have, to have an essence.
0: Okay. Um, well, if the essence of animals is that they have DNA, all right, um, the essence of DNA is going to be what? See these essences are really tricky. Now think of it this way. All right. What if hypothetically, and here I'll go for an abstraction. Push sure. it. Um, let's think of beauty. All right? I believe in beauty. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm a sucker for beauty. When it comes, particularly to intellectual things, uh, I, you know, I'm a Platonist rather than an Aristotelian. It's not that I don't admire Aristotle; it's just that he's not poetic. It doesn't move. It's not beautiful. Okay. Um, When I say that a sunset is beautiful, that Leonardo's The Last Supper is beautiful, when I say that Mahler's Second Symphony is beautiful, and when I say that uh, this is a beautiful time of year, what do all these things have in common? Do they have an essence? And if so, what is it? The idea is this. Nominalism will free you, or the idea is that it can free you from the fruitless search for a chimerical essence that doesn't exist. In other words, um, if you ask around on campus, you will find among the gentlemen that almost every one of them has an idea of who the prettiest girl on campus is. There's almost there's no lies, lies, lies. <laughs> I don't believe that for a minute. OK. but. Um, If you ask them, well, what does the beauty of this girl have to do with the beauty of Mahler's second symphony? Because apparently they both need an essence in order to be beautiful. Well, um, not only do I not see what the essence is, I doubt that there in fact is an essence. In other words, what we have is a a collection of things that we happen to like and find attractive, and we... Draw a circle around it. they're all beautiful. That's a beautiful soul. That's a beautiful idea. That's a beautiful painting. That's a beautiful, I not know, sandwich. Okay? You could spend an entire intellectual career trying to find out what this will of the wisp is. But what if you're chasing a ghost? What if there just isn't any such thing? Well, then you could actually find something useful to do with 40 years of a career rather than wasting your time uh, essentially stuck in the mud and spinning your wheels. That's the advantage that nominalism offers. In other words, it's going to free you from the pursuit of imaginary abstractions. What does chair mean? Well, if you want to know what chair means, there's two questions you want to ask. This comes from Wittgenstein. Question one is, how is the term chair used? So if you want to know what a chair is, See what people do in English when they use the word chair. So, for example, when I say, sit, sit there, it's a chair, all right, um, the definition of chair would be one of those things. All right. You say, well, could you specify the essence of chairs? A, no, I can't. B, sit in the chair. Yeah. So if, if stuff
1: like math can have an essence because, like, four is the same with four books, four... Right. for Couldn't you also say that beauty has an essence because beauty? Um, uh, okay, well, I mean I'll, I. Beauty would be the same. Maybe you would disagree with it. It is, which maybe you might go wrong. But beauty is the same as like we both would recognize that something would be beautiful if we had a
0: common. Do the young men on campus all agree that the same girl is the prettiest one on campus, and if not, why not? Well, what if you did agree? What if two of you did agree that the same okay. girl was... And that they had a property with, say, and that the, the, the prettiest girl on campus, once you've created consensus about that, which would be a fascinating activity. Mm-hmm. But suppose you were to actually do that. Um, you say, you know what? She shares a property with Van Gogh as a starry Night. I might plausibly ask, well, what property is that? I right. say, well, they're both beautiful. I look at the girl and She's a real stunner, but she's not the star of night. Okay,
1: And I guess the same thing would apply if both of you, like, the two people looked at
0: the sunset and were like, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Somebody else or, to say that that doesn't strike me as beautiful, which is another problem we're going to emerge. But, suppose we would agree that the sunset was beautiful. Okay. Uh, how does that make uh, Mahler's Second Symphony beautiful? And what does it have in common, a sunset with Mahler's Second Symphony? So
1: Plato, would, Plato would say that that's they all participate in, in beautiness. Right, that's in the forms. Right. Yeah.
0: Could I ask but a question? I'll get you in a second. I won't forget you. Um, Plato is playing the old shell game with you. You got to watch him because he—I mean—he's—he's—he's he's, he's trying to be a straight dealer, but he's too good of a card mechanic not to occasionally give himself the occasional helpful card.
1: That's
0: <laughs> um, no, true. Very true. Right, and. Uh, the problem that we're going to have for Plato here is that he seems to think that there's an essence to beauty, all right, that all the beautiful things in the world share. All right, what is that? In other words, you got taught the word beauty in the same way you got taught the word chair. Nobody said, hold on for a second, I have to give you the essence of eternal beautiness. The reason why they didn't say that is because they don't know what the eternal beautyness, what what the essence of eternal beautiness is. As a matter of fact, nobody else does either, except perhaps Plato, alright? And the point then is that language works just fine without it and why should we believe that, it, that, that both the Starry Night and Mahler's Second Symphony and this pretty girl all share some property? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Alright? So the world, in other words, is not composed of natural kinds of things to which our language just responds. Rather, we categorize the world in different ways. And then as an afterthought during the, during, in ancient Greece, 25 centuries ago, somebody said, hmm, I wonder how that works. And Plato offers us the idea that it works by participating in the essence of some ideal. Now here's the, here's the, here's the, the uh old shell game. I know what it means to participate, say, in a birthday party. I know what it means to participate in the Olympics. What do you do when you participate in a form? In other words, what does that verb refer to? Yeah, I don't know either. What does something do when it participates in a form? It doesn't seem to be very much like participating in a birthday party or participating in an election, or participating in the Olympics. So, since we're, requ- we're expected to believe that things derive their uh, identity by participation in the form that gives it, mean it gives the term meaning. Um, what are they doing when they participate? I don't understand the activity. And I have never met anybody that could explain to me what, uh, what one of something, the chair, uh, does to participate in ultimate oneness. You know? Which is why Aristotle got rid really of the idea. That's
1: right. Well, doesn't he say that you can't really understand it? Or Plato? Does Plato. Plato that it you can't do. understand it, right? Shocking. So, so then that's can't just. Can't understand what? Plato thinks we can understand ultimate beautiness. To, so he thinks you can understand the form of the good somehow, but he yeah. hasn't
0: figured it out. Well, nobody's figured it out since either. Well, he's seen it, but he refuses to talk about it. He can't talk about it. He's, he's reached the limit of what you can do. With so life. that's just like the beatific vision. That's, just like that's right. That's exactly right. That's why theophany in the Bible is often so weird. Theophany means an actual showing up of God. And he shows up as a burning bush. Okay. Um, you know, look, great rabbis have spent 50 years at a time trying to figure out what that burning bush is. So far, no luck. It's Yahweh, if that helps. <laughs> All right. And when Moses asks him who he is, he says, I am. Okay, well, that clears things up. My point is, when you try and talk about the absolute, right? language breaks down. It doesn't do it very well. It doesn't literally work. Right. So... Um, now you had a question. I did. Though. It's, it's at this point some ways back.
3: Good. Um, and that's Go you, know, you, you you bring up different examples of what we call beautiful, but I, yep. think, I think that you're hiding out in chemistry. Um, in hiding that, out you know, in chemistry. As we look at it, yeah. we look at a series of beautiful women in terms of what's going on in the brain. Is uh, at least from a standpoint of modern science, what's happening is that the brain is, is basically looking at qualities and mm. trying to. I might be so crude, pick a suitable mate. Um, Likewise, when we hear a symphony or look at a painting, it's it's stimulating different electrical signals in our brain, which is pleasurable, and it's really easy to switch those two, which I think is a shell game on its own. Mm. But something that we could describe it, I think that there's a defensible position for beauty. All things that are beautiful bring us closer to God, and only beautiful things bring us closer to God. That that keeps the definition purely uh, in, in the abstract and in not in a real instantiation. I think when we try and um, push the essence into physical things, we kind of get stuck with nothing because if we want to. We want to talk about DNA. If we want to talk about the possum, uh, science sort of proposes that one atom is as good as another. You know, one Sorry. proton and one electron—they're all they're changing. In which case, our, our possum isn't founded. One set of atoms or another; it's in an arrangement of atoms. But then okay. time complicates that.
0: All right, let me. I will get you. Yeah, you can go on further, but let me sure. stop it here. All right. So it's not the content; it's the it's the form of the possum that makes it a possum. Is that the idea?
3: Are we talking about form or arrangement? And so, much well, difference?
0: I mean, you're trying to tell me something about it, the essence of the possum. Sure. All right. And where does this, where does this essence lie?
3: If we try and assign it to a physical arrangement of atoms, mm-hmm. we have to first we have to look at a window of time, right? From the beginning of a thing to the end of the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a human being, from I, I would, uh, suppose the moment of conception to death and say, what is in common uh, physically? And I think there we have to be pushed into nominalism because, you know, even if we make a genetic uh, clone of one thing, there is going to be mutations, there will be differences It just is simply not possible. Okay. To essentially, physically Synonymous things.
0: Okay. Um, I, I was trying to get to an understanding of uh, why, of what, what reason you have for believing possums, for example, have an essence. I'm not convinced that they do. You don't. Okay. I get the idea. And people do. Fair enough. Okay. Um, what is their essence?
3: The essence of a human being.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, for people, what's the essence of a human being? Yeah.
3: Here, and I think I'm, one needs to sort of uh, go into siege theology for an answer to that. And, uh, the, the potentially rational animal seems like a good, uh, a good definition to me. I, I think okay. that's kind of a better
0: one. Potentially um, rational animal. I like that idea. Um, I wonder if that's going to uh, shade off and include things that we're dubious about and exclude things that we're dubious about. Suppose you have a a birth defect, somebody born with serious brain impairment, all right? Um, They're not potentially rational animals. Sure, sure they
3: are. Um, They are, in lieu of? Without a brain? Okay, well, I mean, likewise, if uh, a sports player is to suffer serious enough injury or even to die, that will deprive them of their capacity to be rational, as far as we're concerned, but, but somehow we still end up calling them a human being
0: yeah, that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm wondering so, about. It seems that Why do we call them a human being? You said that human beings are rational animals. It seems to me that there are examples of you know, unfortunate people that don't seem to have that capacity for rationality, but I would still be inclined to consider them human I wouldn't euthanize them. Sure.
3: Is uh, someone rational when they're asleep?
0: Well, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that people
3: that don't have a brain are, are not rational. That's a true statement, but it doesn't answer the question. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know if they're asleep because remember, I'm, 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 I'm being nominalistic <laughs> here. Just seem, you want to be want or you want to exclude, you could do it either way. You be a clumper or a splitter.
3: Once again, an accidental state of physical things is mm-hmm. getting in the way.
0: Okay. Uh, um, Many people regard accidental states of physical things as being the external world. Sure. Well, yeah. if that's getting in the way of things, what is it that you would like to um, supplant the external world with?
3: The external world being physical in nature
0: and also containing accidents.
3: Do Sure. We don't talk about essences, as you said, of having location, right, so when they don't exist in the external world. If we purely want to talk about the external world, then we're going to be talking about science and that is, in essence, nominalistic.
0: Okay. Um, so then, is the idea that, um, rather than nominalism is, uh, is realism, which is the alternative to nominalism, it's the Platonic idea that there are real essences. Um, does realism not then tell us about the physical
3: world? Insofar as there's a, a hole in the sky, right, where we are to make prudential decisions and we want to be bound by things like moral codes, mm-hmm. we need something outside of the physical world in order to have that. It's like what JP was talking about. We need okay. all these ethics. The
0: well, I would have thought that things like Epicureanism were Moral codes that did not make reference to something external to the physical world.
3: Uh, I, I'm not sure I'd be tempted to call Epicureanism a moral code. It seems
0: well, they would, and mostly in looking back at the history of ethics, you well, that, I think
3: that is a family resemblance. It's uh-huh.
0: Yeah, I do too. All right. Here's the difficulty, all right. We often search for things. That do not, in any obvious way, exist. All right? I'm willing. You know, I, I believe that triangles and numbers have essences. Um, I don't know what the essence of hoarseness is, All right? um, because horse is actually, uh, in, in some ways, it, it's true to say horse only appears to be a noun. In fact, what it is is a verb. It's that first mesohippus doing horsey stuff and then getting bigger and looking more and more like a horse, all the way up to mesohippos and then to modern horses. Um, Which is the real horse and which are the other ones that are trying to be full of horseosity but aren't? You see the problem here? Um, Plato wants to step outside of space and time, but as a matter of fact, the things that we we often talk about, we generally talk about, you know, Everyday use of language are not things outside of space and time. Right? Um, I'm not sure that there is an ultimate hoarseness. I think there are just various examples. And where we cut off the beginning of hoarseness and the end of hoarseness is ultimately arbitrary. Right? And so that would seem to me to be consistent with nominalism. Right? I don't see how we can make um, evolutionary biology. Uh, into the transformation of essences which by definition don't get transformed so medieval synthesis is
1: essentially trying to figure out all the stuff like the forms and the essences and nominalism and mysticism
0: is saying we don't, there's no need for that well nominalism is saying well you can't, it's, you a, it's can. a category mistake alright, mm-hmm. you guys have launched us on uh, a snipe hunt where there aren't any snipe. Mm-hmm. Right, and then we come back and it turns out we don't have any snipe. And you can see that as a big defect, or you can see it as um, a testimony of the fact that there aren't any snipe. Yeah. Before we get to the end of the
2: class, we we'll can yeah. talk about my Eckhart- We okay. can actually, yes.
0: Oh,
1: sorry. Yeah. Last thing sorry. so yeah. so that's what Occam would believe is nominalism. Right. That's where you, like Occam's razor right. simplifying
0: everything, right? right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then and and I would say. emphasize to you that Occam's razor is not a logical rule.
2: Mm. <laughs> it's perfect.
0: It's an aesthetic preference. We like simpler stuff rather than more complicated stuff, provided they both do the same job. Oh, okay. Okay. So, Occam's razor says choose the simpler as opposed to the more complicated explanation, Mm -hmm. provided they both have equal explanatory power. But this does not prove that, in fact, the world is simple. It just means that it's handy for us, when we're manipulating our understanding of the world, to simplify things. All right. All right, let's go to Meister Eckhart. The other way of going, the spooky stuff, is Meister Eckhart directly communing with God. <laughs> now, here's the deal. In all of the great monotheisms, it's not just true of Christianity, it's true of the Jews and the Muslims too, all mystics are troublemakers. Every one of them falls into conflict with the local authorities. Here's why. If I'm Meister (laughs) Segre, and I have been given a direct kind of night of fire or falling off the horse on the road to Damascus, kind of experience. All right, first off, whatever language I was using to do things like order lunch and to describe the world around me, um, it's very dubious whether that's going to be adequate to describe our experience. Remember what Pascal said fire, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac. Pascal is an extraordinarily brilliant individual. He's really smart. The problem is he's come up against the limits of language and has started to give us such important insights as fire, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac. I see it all now, weeping, tears of joy, because finally I understand everything. Um, I don't doubt that he's having, that that's a genuine experience. There are some that would just say, look, it's a psychotic break. Um, I'm willing to call it a real experience. My problem is that I don't think this is the kind of real experience that language is capable of communicating. Right? Moses goes into the desert, I saw a burning bush, it talked to me. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know what meaning I'm supposed to attach to that, except that, well, you're on a mission from God and you gotta go talk to Pharaoh. Okay.
2: Uh, I was just gonna point out that John of the Cross was thrown into jail by his own friars.
0: Yeah.
2: I um, look, mystics
0: always get in trouble. Why? Because what they're doing is cutting out the middlemen. The imams or the priests or the rabbis, they're going to interpret the great tradition for ordinary folks like you. Well, mystics don't want anybody's interpretation of anything. They was I want the real thing. straight, no chaser, give me God. Now, suppose you actually believe that God has spoken to you directly. Um, you are now a threat to the authority of the religious establishment you were born into. I mean, the rest of them are working years and for many years laboriously trying to figure out what God or Allah or Yahweh are doing. All right. And yet, here comes this upstart who says... I have special, unique insight into the nature of God and I don't need any of this logic chopping to do it with. Well, I mean, I have some sympathy for this. On the one hand, um, if you do have direct access to God, I don't know how you're going to explain that to anybody else. I think you're likely to go, ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. If you've seen Coltrane's of Love Supreme. Everything is vibrations. I see it all now. I get the idea. Um, on the other hand, um, if you can't talk about it, how can you communicate it? Well, I think that literal speech doesn't work, and this goes back to the actual the nature of theology itself, if theology is possible at all. Okay, and here's the here's the, the point. Um, We need to define our terms, and yet there's no way to shoehorn God perfectly into language. There's always something left out. All right? Now, this is going to get in the way of our logic. I know of two kinds of logic that, that I find attractive and comprehensible. Maybe there are others, but these are the ones that have a pretty good grip on. There's deduction. What that is, is what you do when you're doing math, arithmetic, or geometry. You define your terms, and you work out the implications of that. Okay. Now the problem is that you could define God any way you want. And you could construct an infinite number of mutually incompatible deductive systems, which would deduce all kinds of stuff about God. Uh, If you doubt that this is possible, if you think this is just a platonic threat, I would direct you towards Spinoza's ethics. <laughs> which is one of the most terrifying things the human mind has ever produced um, he's an amazingly brilliant individual but he, he, what he does is uh, talk about the mind and God and the human condition but he formulates it the way Euclid formulated the elements so he has definitions, corollaries theorems and proofs Okay. on the other hand We might try and be inductive about God if it turns out the deduction won't get the job done. And there, you can look around for him, but you're not likely to observe him. And if you can't observe God, then you can't do inductive reasoning on him. Okay. So it looks like both induction and deduction are closed off to us. And this is why Aquinas comes up with the very interesting thought that we're not going to use inductive or deductive reasoning. We're going to reason by analogy. Okay, so it's God. we're going to find out God is like X or God is like Y. Okay, now here's the problem with analogy. First off, it's polyvocal. In other words, it's a problem we have with, with uh, deductive systems. You can analogize death and ice cream. All right, You can analogize a Chevrolet and a lobster. In other words, any two things, no matter how different, can be analogized. Okay. Now, if I, let's think about what it would be like if I were to ask you to define something by analogy or to explain something by analogy. Let's take something easy and not too difficult. All right? Let's take lions. All right? A lion is not a mysterious thing. It's kind of a quadruped, lives in Africa, eats deer and stuff. Okay. Now, suppose you had never been able to observe a lion. And suppose no one had been able to observe a lion. Then I could not explain to you what a lion is empirically because there's nothing to point at in the world in a kind of nominalistic way. So, instead, I'm going to say X is like a lion. Y is like a lion. And you're supposed to be able to figure that out. All right. Now, let me give you an example. Give you some sense of how powerful this method is. A lion is like a starfish. Now you may ask, what? And the answer is, um, starfish are in fact very effective predators. They live at the bottom of the sea. And clams, if they had enough brain power to do so, would be afraid. Because although Starfish to us look like they creep along very slowly. Compared to the motion of a clam, these things are absolutely sprint. Right? Mm. Right. It jumps on the clam, it locks its arms around it, and the clam can't open its shell, which it needs to do ever so slightly in order to breathe and to eat. So that's how starfish kill mollusks. Right. Now, when I tell you that a lion because I'm trying to explain lions to you analogically. Lions are like starfish. And I say, well, right, that's less than illuminating. Right? If you went around, remember you've never seen a lion before, and you say it's like a starfish. <laughs> you go looking about, you're not actually likely to make all that much progress on understanding lions. All right. I can say it's like uh, anything else, X, Y, Z. Here's the point. You may find information to the effect that God is like a starfish or like lions are like a a lion is like a starfish or doing it analogically. You learn precious little about lions like that. My guess is if I said, well, look, it's like a starfish. Now go get me a lion. You would probably be incapable of doing that. Okay. Here's the deal. A starfish is infinitely more Similar to a lion, then anything in the experiential world is like God. That's well That's a fact. Now, this, no, this is where things get really ugly. All right. If you thought, if you, if you were underwhelmed, if you ended up being unimpressed by the information that, God, that lions are like starfish, okay. Well, the claim that God is like X is infinitely less informative. Infinitely less than lions are like starfish? Damn. I mean, that's really, really, really remote. I mean, the tiny residual, if any, that of understanding you get out of that, I don't know what you would hope to do with that.
1: Yeah? So that's where Meister Ecker would... Is, is he trying to say that since you can't understand God that
0: way, he's directly communicating? You, with either, you either understand him directly or you don't understand him. Hmm. All right. And this is not discursive understanding because Meister Eckhart is not going to do something foolish like saying, look, let me tell you what God is similar to. Let me make an analogy. He's going to say, look, God is green and flowering." Yeah.
1: He makes tons of analogies. I know. Yes.
0: Well, he, he does make analogies, but um, his most striking formulations, for me anyway, are metaphors. God is green and flowering. Now, at one level, that might actually literally be true in the sense that God is the summation of all perfections. And this is what plants are supposed to be perfect at, being green and flowering. So, yeah, God is the summation of all perfections. There's a sense that literally in which that's true. On the other hand, if you want to take The idea that God is green, for example, as being uh, literally true, it would turn out then that God has a particular wavelength of light that bounces off him when you hit him with photons, which fails to make sense. So the question is this, in the absence of direct apprehension of God, and I think some people actually do get that, Uh, unfortunately I'm not one of them, but uh, in the absence of that. The best you're going to be able to do is make analogies. And these analogies are appallingly weak. In other words, what's left of it? I mean, if you think that starfish being, lions being like starfish is unilluminating, any analogy to God is infinitely less illuminating. Yeah?
2: The only reason I think that we we still use analogies is because, uh, as Aristotle said, the even the slightest knowledge about the highest things is more valuable than the most vast knowledge of the little things. Okay.
0: I mean, that seems
1: plausible to me. Yeah. Would uh, direct communication from God be like, like Augustine says, like conversion uh, instances? I would imagine so. In other
0: words, I would think it very hard to resist, but since I've never had actually done it, I don't know. Well, wouldn't we all
1: have had some type of conversion experience? Well, no, I've never heard tole legae and then had
0: you know, my life turned around. I mean, I have had a conversion experience, but I'm not sure that everybody does.
2: The Catholic theology will say that the uh, theological virtue of faith mm-hmm. gives us, in a minimal way, at the very least, some direct encounter with God. So everyone who has been a baptized Catholic has had some uh, unmediated encounter with God.
0: Okay, well...
2: Although it's not nothing like Pascal's or essence necessarily, it's still, it's something.
0: Okay, um... Maybe I've had some unmediated access to God and not noticed, mm-hmm. which means I really haven't been paying attention. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, that I, I don't know about, I can't be sure of Now, we're at the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, what we're here is, we're, what we're now at is the end of the Middle Ages. And now we're going to step into uh, the Renaissance. Will we do more next? Uh, no, uh, Chaucer. Chaucer, OK, Chaucer. Um, Strangely enough, Chaucer is ironic and funny. You may not have noticed that but it is. Read the three uh, tales from the Canterbury Tales and I will see you next Tuesday. Okay, so what are your office hours again is it right after class uh, noon you can buy it at noon if you want Okay.